Well, if you have your Bibles with you, if you would open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 7. <clears throat> we're going to dive into verses 1 and 2 in the sermon today and finish it off uh, next week. But let's read the passage as a whole. And this passage begins with this statement, since therefore, which means it reaches back into chapter 3 and is in light of what was just said. And what was just put on display by Peter is Christ's victorious suffering. How he suffered, but all the ways that Christ in his suffering triumphed in our salvation, in his defeat of uh, over death and over demons. And in light of that, here's what he writes. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached to even those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes to this text. Father, that your Spirit would soften our hearts, humble our minds, that we would submit to your word and not our own passions and lusts, which are so natural to us in our sin nature. Father, we ask for Holy Spirit power as we come to your word. And we ask that you would be glorified in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this text, at these seven verses... There is two commands in it, two imperatives. If you look at verse 1, you see it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. There's the command. Arm yourselves. Get an assault rifle, a spiritual assault, assault rifle in your arms. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, you arm yourselves with a weapon that has to do with your thinking. Which means if you think in a certain way, you're armed. You're ready. And then the other command is in verse 7, where he says, Therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded. It has to do with your thinking. Being self-controlled is attached to how you think and whether or not you're armed. And this is not a new thought. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, if you remember what, it, what he said, he said, therefore, prepare your minds for action, for war, 
literally gird up the loins of your minds for war. Arm yourselves. It's the same idea. How we think, what narratives we put through our mind will control what we do in the present. The difference between a hero and a coward is the difference between a person that is thinking one narrative about the world and his life and a person who's thinking about another narrative. If you know the true narrative and the way to victory, in the end you can walk on the right path in the present. That's the point of the sermon. If you know the true narrative that leads to victory, you know how to live in the present. That's what Peter is concerned with. That you arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ armed himself. My children have never come up to me and said, Dad, can you write down a list of principles that we can live by? and number them one through ten? Or they've never come up to me and said, Dad, before I go to bed tonight, will you give me five theological truths that I can believe so I can be a good Christian girl when I grow up? That's never happened. But you want to know what happens nearly every day? And if you're a close friend of my family, it surely happened to you in my household. My girls ask for me to tell them stories every day. And if you come to my house, they'll ask you to tell them stories about your childhood. They love stories. They want to hear a story. They want to hear make-believe fictional stories that I make up. Stories about Patricia Lee Bagenberger. A little girl that instead of going right to school, always takes the long way to school and gets on a big adventure. Or they want to hear stories about Nuagawa, the little... African girl that lives in a mud hut. And every story begins with her going to get water in the river, but some adventure happens. And if I say no to those, they'll say, well, then tell me a story about something you did when you were a kid. And if I say no to those, they go to the one that almost always works. Well, then tell us a Jesus story. Tell us a story about Jesus. They love stories. They love using their imaginations. I tell them stories about William. William is the size of a piece of dust and travels around our house on the back of a spider named Spidey. And they remember stories I told three months ago, that I've forgotten. I don't even know how to piggyback on it because it's not in my mind, but it's in their mind. Narratives are really powerful. I listened to a podcast by a man named Andy Wilson. Comes from an incredible family. His dad is Doug Wilson. And... They raised their children with great literature, great narratives that they read, great fiction they've read, whether it's C.S. Lewis or Lord of the Rings. They grew up with great stories, with heroes. And in this podcast, he said something that caught my attention. He said, our imaginations have more direct access to our memories than our own lives. Let me read that again. 
Our imaginations have more direct access to our memories than our own lives. Here's how he proved it. He said, what did you do on your birthday two years ago? This is an important day, right? It's your birthday. It only comes around once a year. But you probably don't remember what you did on your birthday two years ago and the details of that day. But in a great epic movie, you remember what happened in that last scene at the key moment and you'll remember it to the day you die. Even though that was fiction, unless it was a true story, you'll remember that, but you won't remember what actually happened in your day-to-day life. And his claim is this. When your imagination is triggered, you'll remember it. We remember stories. It'll drive a preacher crazy. He'll use an illustration to highlight a text, and three weeks later, nobody remembers the text, and they only remember the illustration. But that's the way we are. We're meant to hear a narrative, a narrative that is true. N.D. Wilson calls stories soul food. He's going to spend the rest of his life writing fictional children novels and series that have godly, heroic character because he doesn't believe children growing up in the Christian community have good narratives to read. Once you get done with Narnia, what are you going to read? Once you get done with Lord of the Rings, what are you going to read? And he makes this claim. He says, if you look at Christendom, where they don't tell stories, retention is at abysmal levels for those children. So, Christian kids whose parents give them a list. Here's what Christians do. Here's what Christians don't do. Those kids that'll get the A plus on the test, I know the right and wrong, but they weren't put in narrative form. When it comes time for them to act in this world, in the narrative of their life, many of those kids play a character they would not be proud of. Because they haven't grown up with heroes that were the right heroes. He says many kids today, and this was good for me to hear because I have four daughters, the literature or narratives they listen to is what he calls snowflake literature. The princess story. You're special and you're beautiful. And the point of the narrative is the whole world is all about you. And he says, you wonder why your 18, 19-year-old girls end up like selfish whiners wondering why this world doesn't recognize how special they are. Well, because the heroes of their stories were all about them and how great they were and how everything should be about them and their rise to this fame and power. It was interesting, Andy Wilson in this podcast talked about the rioters and looters and vandalizers that we see. He said, these are children that grew up with the wrong stories, with the wrong narratives. How could any child think that burning down a building is going to bring about something good? Are destroying property, are stealing. And yet, this is the narrative of the culture. This is the Darwin story. That from random, a random event, or from some sudden destruction, all, all, all of the sudden, something good is going to come from it. 
It's the difference between Reformation and Revolution. The story we're told today is if you burn down the buildings and you burn down the political system, you burn down everything, then something good's all of a sudden going to pop up. Just, just going to randomly come about. Well, this is linked to Darwinism. Darwinism is all about the survival of the fittest. But think about the heroes in Scripture. Think about Samson. Samson was given great power. And what's the culmination of the story? Hold the building up so that I can survive? No, he's a hero that uses his power self-sacrificially. Think of Moses. You think Moses rising to power was about him saving his life? Look at Jesus. Our heroes use their power and their influence self-sacrificially for God's glory and the good of others. And that's opposite of survival of the fittest. So parents who are raising young boys who may one day watch a police officer choking a man. And for them to step in and try to stop it might mean their life. What's your kid going to do? Is the main thing they've been taught by their parents is survive, be safe, protect your life at all costs? Or have you built into them this rock-solid truth that my life is not my own, that I've been bought with a price to glorify Him? What's the narrative we're teaching our children? Because whoever their heroes are, will determine what they do in the present and in the moment. If you live your life and the goal of your children's life is to be good little kids and resist temptation, if, if, the goal is just, just be good. Christians don't do this. Christians do that. But it's not attached to what the true narrative of the world is. They'll lose that battle. They'll go with their feelings, what seems right. They'll be self-preserving rather than God-glorifying and just one more point from this uh, talk that I listened to from N.D. Wilson is he talked about how we neuter Scripture. <laughs> we take away the narrative. We read a narrative passage, we get rid of the narrative, and we just find moral truths. We just find little principles we can live by. And he says what he loves to do is he loves to speak at, a, at like a conference. He says, he speaks at a lot of homeschool conferences. And he says, a lot of times you have all these homeschool moms there. And he'll ask this question. He'll ask them, where is the very first wizard duel in all of literature? Where's the very first wizard duel in all of literature? And he says, most people guess Harry Potter or maybe Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. And this is where he says, no, it's the old dude with the magic stick and the giant beard that walked out into the wilderness, into the court of the most powerful emperor in the world. And that emperor took one look at him and said, bring me my magicians. He didn't say send the archers. He said, send the magic dudes. 
And they had in this actual world an actual wizard duel. And he, being Moses, spanked them. He he spanked them hard. And we think about our little set uh, sentimentalities that that we like to think, he says, are post-Victorian good and evil, white magic versus black magic. Yet Moses called down the angel of death. He gave orders to all his people to take a blood sacrifice. Yeah, and in one sense, he gave them blood magic to protect themselves. No, really, I need you to kill a lamb, and this is what you must do with blood. You have a blood ritual, and in any kid's book, that would put him on the side of Voldemort. And his point is this, Voldemort is the bad guy in Harry Potter. But he says, how many times have you read the story of Moses and you've taken the supernatural out of it? This is incredible. Spiritual battle where every firstborn of the Egyptian that did not have blood really died. And as he told that narrative... I realized we do, don't we? we? We just read the story of Moses and try to find a moral principle. And we fail to see what's really being said. What is the book of Proverbs all about? The book of Proverbs is an old wise man telling the narrative of life before the young man has read it. So that if he knows the narrative, he can live right in the present. Right? Isn't this how Proverbs works? Let me tell you the story of how the world works so that if you know the story right, if you have the right narrative, you'll know how to live in the present. Look at Proverbs 5, verse 1 with me. He says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. He says, listen to me because I'm going to tell you important truth for the present. This is Proverbs 5, verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. Son, listen to me. That forbidden woman, her speech is smooth. And it sounds so good. But that's not the end of the story, son. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. She doesn't know what narrative she's in. She's deceived. Young men, son, her speech is smooth, but do you know the end of the story? You know where this story ends up? Because if your sons don't know where that story ends up, they will have no power in the present to defeat pornography in their life. Pornography itself is a narrative, right? It's a narrative where the one watching is the one who's adored. And yet the scripture tells us the beginning of the story, yeah, it's smooth, Yeah, it's enticing, but it ends up in death. And that forbidden woman, she doesn't even know she's in a narrative. She doesn't know the end of the story. She thinks she's living out life for her benefit. And this is really what biblical counseling is. Biblical counseling used to be called neuthetic counseling. It's a word we never use, neuthetic. But it's a compound word that combines the Greek word nous 
And the Greek word tithemi, nous means to direct one's mind. Tithemi means to place. Biblical counseling is to tell a different story, a different narrative to the counselee. This is how they naturally think about their life and their circumstances. But the neuthetic counselor places a different narrative on the table. Different facts that are given to us from Scripture. Because whatever sin problem the person's in, or whatever struggle they're having, they need to be placed in a true narrative of what it means to be a believer. A new way of thinking, a way of looking at life through God's word rather than their feelings. In fact, in Hebrews 12, 11, the writer of Hebrews says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you hear the narrative? I know the discipline of the Lord doesn't seem good right now. But it produces the fruit of righteousness. Children live righteous lives. Why? Because there's fruit. Righteousness is awesome. It's called the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see that? And so scripture walks us through over and over again the, how to deal with the present in light of what's coming in the future. Now, I know that's a long introduction into our text, but hopefully you can see what Peter's trying to do here, what he's calling uh, his readers who are likely under persecution and running for their lives. He's teaching them how to deal with life. In fact, if you go back to 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, where we spent all those weeks, look at the narrative he went through. Christ suffered once for sins. That's an incredible narrative right there. God took on flesh, suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That is an incredible fact that he might bring us to God. You and I going to the throne of God? And not only that, but he proclaimed to the spirits in prison that Christ, after he died on the cross, being made alive in the spirit, he goes down and declares his victory over the demonic forces from these demons that rebelled back in Noah's day, which brings about another narrative. And Noah and his family that climbed into the ark were saved through judgment, and yet Christ corresponds to that. You see that? How many stories are there? How many facts, true stories that happen in history has Peter just laid out? And then he says in our text, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. What does that mean? That means that he physically died. He willingly died. That's the narrative of Christ's life. He denied his own selfish passions and desires for the glory of God and the good of you and I. Christ never once looked lustfully at a woman. He never took advantage of a person financially. He never flattered a person with insincerity for personal gain. He perfectly loved others. He put others before himself. He perfectly loved God. And he never loved the creation more than the creator. <laughs> it's incredible life that we can't fathom as sinful human beings. But since he lived that way, 
and suffered that way. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You see that? How did Jesus do it? What narrative was running through his mind? Because I'm commanded to put a weapon in my hand. And that weapon is a weapon that has to do with my mind. And I need to be thinking what Jesus thought. Some translations says have the same attitude that Christ had. Well, attitude has to do with your thinking, right? Bad circumstance, one person has a good attitude, they're thinking one narrative. Another person is grumbling and whining, they're thinking another narrative. But we're to arm ourselves with thinking like Christ thought. How did he think? Luke 9.23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He calls you to suffering as he suffered. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? That's a story. What if you get the perfect guy, young single ladies? What if you get all the money? What if you have all the power and popularity, but you lose your soul? The narrative doesn't end the way you want. And we're to arm ourselves with the perspective that Christ has. Christ had a willingness to die knowing that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew there was victory. He knew that if he defeated Satan in the wilderness, when he told him, eat food now, get glory now, from mankind, Satan said, I'll give you all this world to rule over now if you'll worship me. Christ knew that in the present to suffer and to not take the bait, but to go to a cross was going to lead to victory. He had the right narrative. He knew how to live in the present. And then look at what he says. So arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the most practical sense, suffered in the flesh ultimately leads to death. That, that, that's what Christ did. He suffered in the flesh and died. And John MacArthur points out that physical death is the ultimate meaning. When you die, Christian, you will not sin again. You will not sin again. Sin is over when you physically die. That's a fact. Your greatest enemy used to be death. But now that Christ has conquered death, the day you die, you'll be ushered in to the presence of Christ. And if you believe that, if you have that narrative in your mind, you'll be able to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking of Christ. But obviously, it doesn't just mean death because he, the passage goes on to talk about how it ought to change the way we live in this world. Tom Schreiner says, just as Christ suffered in the flesh by dying, so too believers should resolve to suffer, for the decision to suffer indicates that they have ceased to let sin have dominion over them. <clears throat> the only reason why a person doesn't fight sin 
is because they want to feed their flesh. They want to succumb to the fleshly, selfish passion. But when the person has the ultimate narrative of glorifying God, and that comes through self-sacrifice, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, denying oneself, he who loses his life will find it, has a big sword in their hand and begins to give victory over sin. It's a, they're armed well, you're armed well when you think that way. How did the Apostle Paul think? He thought this way. Let me just read <clears throat> Philippians 1.19. See if you can figure out the narrative that's running through Paul's mind. <clears throat> Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's in jail. And he's writing a letter to the Philippians. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether be by life or by death. He says, I want to glorify God in my death and in my life, and I want to be courageous. For to me, this is his narrative, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's an interesting narrative. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Jesus. If I... Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell, he says. I'm pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He has two narratives, and he's going to be faithful in both. If God leaves me here, well, I'm going to serve him. If I'm going to die, well, that's far better, because I'm going to be in the presence of Christ. So that's how you get a courageous man in the presence of persecution. Here's how he says it to Timothy. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. He's telling a story, a true story, about what happened to him. And then he says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Ah, that's how he dealt with it, right? Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Oh man, this is such a ripoff. Jesus chose me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Do you realize how unfairly I'm being treated? This is so unfair that Alexander the coppersmith would do this to me. Oh, I got to bear this heavy burden of Christ. What a ripoff. That, if I'm honest with you, that's what I'm tempted to. Right? Complain. Someone's not nice to me, give me 10 people to gossip to so that they'll feel sorry for me in the way I'm being mistreated. But that's not what he said. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Right? Here's where I start to pout. May it not be charged against them. Well, that's a little different than gossiping. I want their good. The cowardly Christians that didn't stand with me, Lord, don't charge it against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through the message, or so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's his narrative. The Lord will rescue me. No, Paul, they're going to chop your head off. I know, but he'll bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. It is going to turn out for my good. He had the mind of Christ. 
Just as Christ suffered and had the right narrative, he had the right narrative. And then in 2 Corinthians 1.8, here's how he says it. For I do not, not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. I want you to hear this story, he said. For we were so utterly burdened beyond strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how he felt. That was his feelings. But, listen how he tells the narrative in his mind. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We felt like we'd rather die. Our circumstances were so bad. But that was so that God would make us quit relying in our own strength and trust in him. In 1 John 3, I love how John says this. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we're not sinless yet. But when he appears, we will be sinless. And then he says this in verse 3, and here's the point. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you know that narrative, that you're one day going to be without sin, and you know that that is the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and that is where true joy is, if you know that narrative, then in the present, you're going to purify your flesh, which means you're going to fight your sin, and you're going to repent, and you're going to go to God's Word to get the right narrative. And so, we are to think like Jesus thought. We're to know the narrative of Jesus' life so that we can think like Christ. And the second point, which we're just barely going to introduce this morning, is to not only think like Jesus thought, but to live like Jesus lived. Go ahead and look at verse 2. So why are we to recall Christ's suffering? So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Which means, if you don't recall this narrative every day and have it in your mind, you will live for human passions. But we're called to faith in the true narrative of life so that in the present, we don't have to live for ourselves. This human passion is rooted in our unredeemed flesh. The New Testament talks about it all the time. Here's how Paul says it to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.1. See if you can hear it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There it is, right? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But we're to recall Christ's suffering and his victory so that we can be rescued out of that life. So that we no longer are enslaved to those passions. Passions are like lustful cravings and instincts. I'm hungry, so give me food. I have sexual desires, so let me Satisfy my fantasy as far as that fantasy goes. Right now, let me do it. I covet what I don't have, so give me that credit card so I can get it right now. All those are 
evidences of slavery to the old way of life, to our passions that are inside of us. And Christ died for us so that even in this life, we no longer need to be enslaved by them. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, listen how Paul said it. He said, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, he knew a narrative that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live, here's the purpose, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's what Peter's teaching. Paul says, once I concluded this narrative, now I can quit living for myself and live to glorify God and love others. If you'll turn with me to Jeremiah 17, verse 5, I think we see such an incredible passage here that fleshes out what it means to no longer live the rest of this life in the flesh for human passions, but for the will of God. If we would only remember this narrative, Jeremiah 17, 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, in whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. So there's a story. There's one man who trusts in man, who lives according to the passions of the flesh. He's going to be like a dried up shrub with no good days in front of him. But verse 7 is another narrative. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the streams and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. So this man comes to hard times and fruit comes. He comes to suffering, but fruit comes because his trust is in the Lord. And then he tells us again in verse 9 about the first narrative. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Is the heart more deceitful than demons even? Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. So if you want to go with the human way and trust your own instincts in your own heart, you're trusting the most deceptive thing in creation. But Christ died to redeem us out of that lie and that narrative. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I search the heart and test the mind and every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Christians must see and know these narratives, these proverbs, they must know the life of Christ. They must know the life of Moses. They must know the life of Samson. They must know the life of Paul. They must know how Paul thinks. Because every morning, you're going to wake up and believe some narrative. What do you hear politically all the time? You hear this statement, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? What's the implication of that statement? The implication of that statement is this. You're living inside a narrative. And one day your children are going to look at what you did. And you don't want to end up being immoral and unloving and not accepting. They're saying you don't want to be in the wrong narrative. And actually they're exactly right. But what narrative do they have in mind? Do they know how it ends? Do they have the narrative that Christ had? Do they know that judgment comes to those 
who trust in man's ideas and man's ways. And this passage goes on that we're going to look at next week. I'll just introduce it to you. Because then he says this, for time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And we're just going to break apart every one of these words next week. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they'll malign you. Of course they will because they don't know the narrative. They think you're weird. That's because you're living by a different narrative. You know what verse 5 says. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So next week, we're going to take a good hard look at how the Gentiles live. And be reminded that we've lived that way long enough. And that Christ has severed the power of sin through the gospel. And that we, can, we, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Father, I pray that we would think this week about the narratives that are running through our mind. Lord, as difficulties come this week, that we would be aware of how we're thinking through them. Be aware of whether or not we see your goodness and your sovereignty and your plan. Father, our flesh is strong in our desire to chase after every lust is strong. But Lord, I pray that you would convict even this morning any area in our life that we've protected because of a false narrative we've put in our mind. Lord, I pray that we would seek joy in obedience to you and your word. We would seek joy in the gospel of Christ, that we would see that our only hope is in him. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.